To support the Historian's Podcast, please donate at our GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Hi, my name is Anita Sanchez. I'm the author of uh, books for kids, mostly, on um, nature and science and the environment. A few years ago, I took a trip to Iceland, and I was lucky enough to walk on a glacier. And it was just an amazing experience. It isn't like just standing on a big pile of snow. A glacier is actually moving. It makes noise. It changes. And when I walked up the side of it, there was this sense of climbing onto the the back of a, a big frozen animal or something. It was beautiful, and also I found out that glaciers are an endangered species. As our Mm. climate is changing, glaciers are melting. Our world is changing um, because of human-caused pollution, and we need to do something about it. So I've written a book called Meltdown, and it's for young people ages 0, 10 and up, but I hope really anyone can enjoy it of any age. It talks about glaciers and why we should care about them, even if we've Mm -hmm. never seen one or Mm -hmm. live far away from them. That's really a powerful image that you uh, give us about walking on the glacier. Uh, The book is called Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers and Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. Uh, Anita Sanchez Uh, drives home the importance of protecting uh, glaciers as vital resources. The book is illustrated by Lily Padula. Uh, She illustrates it with photos or with with drawings? Beautiful drawings. Absolutely gorgeous, dramatic sketches of glaciers, of crevasses, which are the deep cracks in glaciers that are hundreds of feet deep sometimes, and also of the wildlife. And because it's a book aimed at younger readers, I made a a focus of the wildlife um, that live on glaciers or near glaciers and depend on them, because as the glaciers melt, these animals are becoming in trouble. And again, we need to take action to help save them. You traveled to Iceland to walk on your glacier and you and I both live in upstate New York. Do we have a glacier around here we can walk on? No, but I did travel in the United States to, um, we do have many glaciers in the States, mostly in national parks, mostly out west. So I went to uh, Cascades uh, National Park, which is in Washington State, and explored the glaciers there. And so most of, actually most of the book is uh, based on American glaciers, I discovered that one of the main glaciologists in the United States is a man named Dr. Maury Pelto. And so I thought I was going to have to go out to Washington because he does his research in Washington State. But it turns out he lives about an hour away from me in Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. I just just could drive over to Massachusetts and talk with him um, in person several times about his research. Glaciers have been around for a long, 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 long time, right? I mean, uh, hundreds of years? Uh, in some cases, millions of years. I mean, they, they, they vary. Um, there are ones in the Cascades that are, yeah, maybe 100, 200 years old. But um, the oldest glacier they found is in Antarctica, 
and it's you know it it goes back way more than a million years. It's just this enormous thick blanket of ice that's covering the uh, the South Pole, basically. My my guess would be that Antarctica would have the kind of the king of the glaciers as far as Earth is concerned. Do they? Right. Right. There's actually two kinds of glaciers. There's what they call continental glaciers, which covers a good deal of Antarctica. So sort of think of that as pancake batter. If you pour pancake batter onto a frying pan, the pancake batter slowly spreads out and moves. And so that's what a continental glacier is like. Then there's what they call mountain glaciers or alpine glaciers. And they're more like rivers. And they're the more common ones that, you know, you could see in a, a national park, like in Glacier National Park. It's like a river, of a frozen river moving down through the mountains. When, when you're at the glacier site or you're on the glacier, do you hear it moving? Do you see it moving? Well, no, you don't see or feel it moving. They move very slowly. I mean, they move glacially, you know, at a, at a glacial <laughs> pace, very, very slowly. Um, in some cases, it might be a couple of inches in a year. In some cases, it might be 100 feet in a year. It, it, again, they vary. You definitely can hear them. When I was in the Cascades, it was very silent, and we were far, far from. We had to drive for 30 minutes on a dirt road way into the back and then hike for a bit. So we're far from any noises except, you know, birds and the wind and the trees and so forth. And then there was all of a sudden this like, kind of like a distant thunderstorm and then a, a boom, like a distant uh, thunderbolt. And we could see a, a chunk of the glacier actually break off and then kind of flow down the mountainside like a white river. A big chunk had broken off. I was there in May, which was the time when there's, there's some natural melting. Glaciers always melt some in the summer and then they you know, get bigger in the winter as it snows. So that some some melt is natural and has always happened. So this was this was part of the natural meltdown, but it's being accelerated by the fact that our climate is changing. In terms of history again, I've heard that upstate New York here again, the place where we we live, was visited by glaciers centuries ago. I mean, is that true? I mean, they they, they came through here and created some of our lakes and so forth? Oh, exactly. I mean, thousands, thousands and thousands of years ago, if if we were, you know, sitting where we are 10,000 years ago, we would be under this enormous wall of ice, like a mile thick. So, yeah, you can see our landscape. There are places where you can see scratches in rock, bedrock, where glaciers have scraped and scratched over the land. Uh, lakes were formed by glaciers like the Finger Lakes. Um, so, yeah, this is a glacial landscape. A lot of the landscapes of the, particularly the northern hemisphere, the Norwegian fjords, the, some of the mountains of China, you know, they were all formed by glaciers long ago. So glaciers have always melted. They've always changed. You know, that's happened over the course of thousands of years. Do we have fewer glaciers now than we did? Well, yes, because you know, there was an ice age about 10,000 years ago. There was an ice age and there was much of the planet was covered with glaciers. And then they retreated several thousand years ago. And now, yes, there's fewer than there were previously. Let me get to the 
a question which I imagine influences a lot of what you've you've written in the book, Meltdown, you, you, with that title. Do we have a problem here, Houston? <laughs> Are the glaciers melting? Yes. Dr. Pelto, the glaciologist, has been visiting the same glaciers in the same days of the year for the past 20 years. And so he, you know, he measures them each year. And plainly, there's a dramatic, rapid melt. Some glaciers have, there are glaciers that have literally become extinct. There's a place in Iceland where they've put up a, a tombstone mourning a glacier that has vanished. It's just not there anymore. We can see that the change has been very rapid and very recent, and it's because of climate change, which we're all hearing about so much in the news. It's caused by human-caused pollution, you know, cars, factories, power plants um, that put gases into the air that trap the sunlight's heat near the Earth. It's called the greenhouse effect. And so our planet is warming. So it doesn't seem like it's a big deal. You know, on a cold day, oh, the planet might warm three or four degrees. Whoa, you know, that's that's good, right? What difference does it make if it's, you know, 60 or 65? But ice melts at 32 degrees. So if it's 30 degrees and the temperature goes up four degrees, things melt. So that's why we're feeling the effects of climate change more up in the north. In a temperate area where we don't have glaciers, it's hotter, you know, it's warmer. We're having the warmest, this is one of the warmest Novembers we've had on record. But in a a frozen area, if you live in Alaska or the Yukon or Norway or Iceland, the change is much more dramatic because ice that used to be there isn't there. Snow that used to be there isn't there. If I was a, a glacial chef, I guess I'd start out with ice. But there's more to a glacier than ice. And come to think of it, where's the ice come from? Well, that's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, what's a recipe for a glacier? And I think there's a line in my book that says a glacier is made out of Earth's simplest ingredients, cold and time. So what happens is you've got snow, right? It snows. And usually in our climate, Spring comes and snow melts. But in colder climates, not all the snow melts. It stays there. And the next year it snows again and you get more snow and you get more snow. And so you, over years, centuries, millennia, you get snow piling up and it presses, the weight of it presses down. And so the snowflakes become packed into solid ice. First, they, they get into, they come, become what's called fern, which is like very pebbly, hard snowflakes. And then they're compressed even more as more weight piles on top to be solid ice. And the most, the solidest ice is so compressed that all the air is squeezed out of it. It actually is blue in color. And so then this giant amount of ice begins to flow. So if the the snow pile is on a mountain slope that's very slightly tilted, the ice, the glacier, begins to flow down the side of the mountain. So that's why it's often referred to as a, a frozen river. It's flowing, mm-hmm. but not like a river of water. It's flowing very slowly, maybe six inches a year, but it is moving. Can we use this glacier as a natural 
resource? Can we drink drink the water? Can we extract the the dirt that's in it to, for other purposes? Oh, absolutely! It, a glacier is a giant reservoir of water. That's the main one of the main impacts that we're seeing right now. When I was um, on the glacier in Iceland. The, I was on it like a you know a tour guide kind of thing, and so the guide said, "Would you like a drink?" And we're all like, "Well, no, you can't just you know drink out of a you know water that isn't like you know come from a faucet." And so she just there was a little a part of the glacier that was where there was some melting, and she filled up a cup, and we all took a drink, and it was the most fresh, clear, clean water. It's just delicious water. There are many places all over the world where. It's the main source of water in places in Peru um, or in Washington State. In the glacial melt in the spring, the, the natural melt that's always happened, um, begins to fill up the streams with cold water. And then in Washington, the salmon return from the ocean. They swim up the streams of cold water and the salmon spawn. And, of course, the salmon are the basis of all these food chains. They're eaten by everything from grizzly bears to humans. So um, one of the chapters in my book is called Some Like It Cold, and it's about mm -hmm. the, the wildlife that depends on the glaciers for their habitat and for water. But of course, humans are just another species that are dependent on the glaciers for water. Do people live on glaciers? Not, not commonly. It's their Particularly the mountain glaciers are places of change. There's a crevasse might suddenly open in a place where that was because it's moved, it's slowly flowing down the side of the mountain um, or moving over the continent. A place where you were sitting yesterday might a crack might open, a hundred foot deep crevasse. Mm -hmm. So no, it's not a place where people are going to build houses. Many people live near glaciers, um, particularly some of the indigenous people in northern Canada and Alaska, the, the Inuit, um, live near glaciers. Are these glaciers, you say meltdown again, uh, are, are disappearing? Is that apply across the board to glaciers or is it a in fact, one or the other of the important species of glaciers, or is it sort of um, the meltdown is taking place in some parts of the world but not in others? No, it's across the board. Glaciers are disappearing everywhere. Um, not just glaciers, but uh, all of the frozen places of the world, the, the sea ice, the icebergs that polar bears are standing on. Um, you know, the ice that used to cover most of the, the northern oceans, there's just less of it. It's just melting. And then, again, there's always been a spring melt, but it's always been replenished by a fall snow. You know, fall and winter, we get snow. Spring and summer, it melts. Then we get snow, and it's always been, a, a, you know, an equilibrium. But now that equilibrium's been broken so that what falls in fall and winter doesn't replenish what melts away in spring and summer. So each year the glaciers are smaller. The icebergs are smaller. The ice cap is smaller. Glaciers are heavy, and that's one of the reasons they change how the landscape looks. Are they still, are they losing any of their mass, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, exactly. A, a healthy glacier 
Um, Dr. Pelto was talking with me about he, when he takes a class of students to the Cascades and they walk on glaciers, and they measure the health of glaciers, like when you go to a doctor for a physical. A healthy glacier will be uh, convex, so it, you know it'll bulge outwards um, like a, a mound, and a glacier that's melting away will be concave. It will be, you know, hollowed out. Um, and then they measure, you know, last year it came down to here. This year it ends way up here. And the next year it'll end further, further up. So they, they can see every year that the glaciers are physically getting smaller because they're melting away. Glaciers cover 10% of uh, the the planet of the of Earth's land mass, uh huh, is that getting smaller? The, the the area they cover. Yes. You mentioned a long time back that among other things, you actually find fish inside the, the glaciers. Do you? Did, did I get that wrong? Fish. Uh, well, I what you're thinking of not inside the glaciers, but um, a a. a Part of my book is on the fascinating creatures called salmon, which are the most amazing fish. They live in the ocean, but they return to the stream where they were born to lay eggs. And so, you know, you've probably heard of the salmon swimming upstream. Right. So they, they swim up the cold streams that are being fed by the glacial melt in the spring they swim back to the, the very place where they were spawned. So all these streams are, are coming from the glaciers. The salmon lay their eggs. And as they're swimming upstream, you know, you may have seen pictures of, you know, the, the grizzly bears that line the banks of the stream, you know, fishing for the salmon. Uh, of course, it's a huge, the, the salmon fishery is huge. I mean, go to the grocery store, you've probably seen the price of salmon is going up. Um, the thing is that salmon can't live in warm water. And as the glaciers melt earlier in the season and as the temperature rises, the water temperature rises, even a couple of degrees is enough to kill salmon. So the salmon can't survive. They can't spawn. So there's fewer salmon. Uh, again, go to the grocery store. Salmon is not cheap and it's getting more expensive because... Mm -hmm. They're just fewer salmon because they need these cold conditions to survive. That's why my chapter about the salmon is called Some Like It Cold. Hmm. Because often people will say, oh, climate change, you know, so what if it only is two degrees different? We don't care. 70, 72, what's the difference? But a two-degree difference in the water temperature kills salmon, hmm. which affects humans and grizzly bears and foxes and otters and herons and all the zillion of creatures that also depend on the salmon for their survival. If the glaciers were to melt, as in melt, your title, Meltdown, let's say the huge glaciers down in Antarctica and others around the world, I mean, this would be a real serious event, would it not? Yes, indeed, and it's happening now. Um, there, one of the consequences is sea level. It's changing the ocean, and sea levels are rising. And we're seeing that already, you know, floods, places flooding that never used to flood. 
you know, up, upstate New York here, we all remember Superstorm Sandy. The water's just coming up higher than it used to come up. And you wouldn't think that an island in the South Pacific would have anything to do with glaciers. But and I, these islands in the South Pacific, the not the ones, the volcanic ones like Hawaii with the big mountains, but the, the low-lying islands in the South Pacific, the highest place in the whole island might be four or five feet above sea level. So if the sea level rises a couple of feet, these are, this has serious consequences for these island nations. There are places that are uninhabitable now that people could live on live in 20 years ago, but they just can't now. Is there, does anybody have a game plan for protecting glaciers? And is it, well, is that happening now that we're, we're trying to, we're, we as a species, we're, we're trying to um, preserve what glaciers we've got left? Exactly. It's, I, I, in the book I write about, uh, there's a community in, uh, I think it's Switzerland, where they're, every fall they put, or every spring, rather, they put a blanket over their glacier to try to keep it cold and deflect the sun's rays so that it won't melt. And that's just putting a Band-Aid on. It's not going to do anything but maybe slow the meltdown a tiny bit. Um, a big focus of my book is to get young people to become activists because it's so easy with all this bad news climate change, oh my God, it's terrible, we're all going to die, it's awful. Um, it's very easy to just feel apathy and just forget about it. Why bother? It's terrible. So I really want to inspire young people to take action because we can turn climate change around. We have the technology, it's just that we need to do it. We need to stop using coal-fired power plants. We need to start using wind and solar and sustainable sources of energy. We need to stop cutting down our forests. We need to plant new trees. There are ways that we can turn climate change around and slow down the effects of climate change. But it will take everyone on the planet working together. Um, one of the things I really emphasize in my book is the importance of voting. Voting. Because <laughs> voting. Voting is the most important thing you can do to save the glaciers because even if every person in the world changed their light bulbs and tried to live more sustainably and lower their carbon footprint, it wouldn't stop climate change. It's big corporations, it's governments that need to take action on a large scale. And voting for politicians who believe in climate change and who will work to fight it is the most important thing we can do to save the planet. Or is there an organized effort or is saving glaciers sort of part of the general effort to uh, lower temperature of the of the earth and and so forth? Right. It's not like you can do something specifically to save glaciers. What we need to do is reverse climate change. And that's very hard to deal with. It's, you know, how, how do you stop the sun from shining? How, how do you change the air? It's, it's a very tricky thing to do. Um, so, again, voting for politicians who will enact government policies 
not just in the U.S., of course, but all over the world, to lower carbon emissions. That's what, you know, you hear that word a lot. Let's lower our carbon emissions. That's what it's all about. If we can lower our carbon emissions, we can stop this process of the planet warming. It's going to take, it's going to take years. It's not going to happen next Tuesday, but it's going to take a long time and we can't completely reverse it on a dime, but we can hope to slow it and make things better. There's also agencies, um, World Wildlife Fund, many different agencies that are working specifically to work with wildlife that are threatened by glacial melt. The meltdown is affecting um, everything from grizzly bears to ice worms to penguins. Um, I'm just starting to research penguins for a book I'm working on. And of course, if penguins, if they need cold water for the type of food they eat, they need an ice sheet to stand on. So um, we can help wildlife that's impacted by the meltdown. Um, but we all, the, the overall problem is we need to battle climate change. And all of this uh, came to you following a trip to Iceland and standing on a glacier. Yes. I, I really think it's, it's so important for people to have real first-person, real-life contacts with nature. Um, most of my books are set much closer to home. Um, I've worked with children for many years, and I always try to get kids outdoors, off the lawn, into the woods, into the fields, touching things, seeing things, experiencing the outdoors. I think um, it's it's very easy to, it would have been very easy to write a book about climate change where I just, you know, scare people and scold people. But that's not really going to change. I think fear is a bad motivator. Um, my goal is to try to get people to fall in love with the outdoors. There's a great quote that in the end, we will conserve only what we love. And I think that's really true. We have to really care about nature in order to save it. Um, that's why, again, why that's why I tried to focus on wildlife. I mean, most people don't, it's hard to get too emotional about a glacier in the abstract, but grizzly bears are just so cool and penguins <laughs> are just so cool that that's, you know, you can fall in love with penguins or with um, ice worms. Ice worms are really cool, actually. Ice worms are found on glaciers or mountain goats or whatever type of wildlife um, that's affected by glaciers. What is an ice worm? <laughs> I had never heard of an ice worm till I started researching this book. Um, they live, they're one of the very few things that actually lives on glaciers. They're a type of worm. They're the size of an eyelash. And during the day, they burrow deep down into the snow. And then when the sun goes down, they come up to the surface of the glacier and they feed on tiny microscopic bits of uh, organic material like plants and stuff, basically dust that has blown onto the glacier. And people weren't even aware they existed until fairly recently. They only live on glaciers. They don't live in snow. They only live on glaciers. We don't know why. And we don't know why they don't freeze solid because they're just these tiny things, literally the size of an eyelash. They're living in the snow. So there's a, a Canadian scientist who's doing research on them, trying to figure out why 
they don't freeze um, because when you do organ transplants, you want to keep organs very cold, but you don't want them to mm -hmm. freeze. Solving the mystery of why I'd be out, these little ice worms don't freeze, what is it about their chem body chemistry may help us with, you know, secrets that can help humans. If ice worms go extinct, then we'll never be able to find out. There's so, there's so many things we can learn from wildlife, you know, in terms of benefiting humans, medicines and things like that, that if the animal goes extinct, you know, we'll never know. Anita Sanchez is author of Meltdown, Discover Earth's Irreplaceable Glaciers, Learn What You Can Do to Save Them. The book is published by Workman Publishing. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.